Welcome to the Inferno Cast. Today's guest is an eighth-degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's part of the family that brought Jiu-Jitsu to America, and he now has affiliates across the globe. Please welcome Carlos Machado. How are you doing today, Oof. sir? Man, I'm pumped up, man. I'm pumped up. It's Friday, man. It's Friday. What are you talking about, Caleb? The week is just ahead of us. Can't be upset. <laughs> Finally. I know. I'm excited. Finally, right? Yeah, it's like the days kind of run together with the whole kind of corona pandemic thing. But at the same time, I still can appreciate a good weekend. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I wanted to start today with kind of where you came from as far as being a kid doing martial arts. I knew you trained with your dad and you started at a young age. So do you feel like martial arts was kind of a part of life for you and your family? Or was there some kind of external influences? Yeah, okay. So uh, a little bit of both. Right, so my dad, he was a judge in a high level uh, court, uh, state level. You know, he used to be a lawyer and a prosecutor back in the old days. So he never trained beyond blue belt. He knew the basic self-defense and stuff like that. Uh, my mom uh, was the one that wanted me and my brothers to have a bit of uh, the benefits of martial arts since the beginning. So I remember uh, my first instructor actually was late. Alio Grace, you know, I remember when I was a little guy, uh, she used to take me to do uh, lessons with uh, Uncle Helio, and he would just teach basic stuff. Um, I trained with many of my related cousins, uh, the Gracies. Uh, I was a student up to Yellow Belt to late Master Carlson Gracie. Then I trained between Yellow Belt to early Blue Belt with uh, late Holes Gracie, the great champion of the family. And then after that, Carlos Gracie Jr., his brother Crawling Gracie, and then my cousins Helion Gracie, Hanzo, and all my Machado brothers, we became kind of instrumental. I would train with Hickson here and there. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing thing because I was born into a family that had that as part of their legacy and tradition to start with. But uh, my mom was the one that wanted us to get started for just the reason that, you know, how nowadays – you bring your kid to, to do martial arts, especially the bully situation, this and that. So it, be, it became something I took for granted when I started because I knew everybody. All the instructors were my, related to me for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you're at a young age, sometimes you get put in circumstances or situations that become the norm. And your norm just happened to be training with some of the best athletes on the planet that was going to revolutionize martial arts everywhere. You know, so at what stage did you realize that was happening, that this was going to define who you were and that this was going to be your path? Yeah, it takes time for you to realize uh, history. Because a lot of times you don't recognize, let's say, the characters of an era until after their past. And you look back, whether well, other people that tell you about that time, oh, remember those guys at that time and this and that. Uh, so for me, it was a couple of things. First, of course, I had the benefit of uh, having late Carlos Gracie Sr., late master Carlos Gracie Sr., one of the patriarchs of the Gracie family, as somebody that I could go to all the time and have, you know, a lot of conversations. They would go beyond just the mat, you know. He taught me a lot about philosophy of life, about lifestyle, about spirituality, and things like that. And, uh, you know, I think it was just after I decided 
when I got done with law school that I wanted to be an instructor. Uh, I realized there was a sense of a mission that I didn't know for sure what it was. Then I came to America, to Los Angeles originally, to work with my cousins there, Hoy and Hoyce and uh, Hickson. And then with my brothers, we opened up our first Machado gyms in Tarzana and then in Redondo Beach. Uh, but then eventually I went to Texas, came to Texas actually, I'm here now, uh, because Chuck Norris was doing his show and so on. You know, but even, it, it took me like being Texas on my own to, to realize the sense of history. Because I remember what Texas looked like before I came, what it has become after I came here. And see that a lot of the students that I had at the time, my original black belts, you know, like Luther, you know, Clay uh, Pittman, you know, uh, Tim Burrell, uh, William Vendry, you know, they were the first guys I ever promoted for black belt. And, and of course, several hundreds more black belts up to this point. And, and then this black belt started to teach and they promoted tons of other black belts. So now I think, that, I mean, the thousands of people that have direct lineage uh, with me and then many that have indirect lineage. So, uh, but I never came to realize what was history like? Because, you know, when you live in the moment, it's hard to see the future or how things will take uh, shape. And then you have the UFC 93 with Hoist, you know, a skinny guy jumping into the mat the octagon and beating guys were 10 times his size. Like, you know, I mean, it was just like a trip. And uh, Chuck Norris being an advocate of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu on Lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson doing triumphs on, on Gary Busey and so yeah. on. I mean, you start to see things becoming mainstream. Nowadays you watch movies where they talk about Jiu-Jitsu, about MMA, about, but you know, Jiu-Jitsu has become such a revolutionizing aspect of the martial arts period uh, and I think the input of the Gracie family what they brought along in creating that system passing it on to everybody else I, I, I'm just honored and humbled to be uh, you know in the pioneering uh, front because I was in the United States in the early 90s when before the UFC took place so uh, I was able to see the before and the after and still now there's exponential growth no matter how you look at it you know so but now I think, just to answer your question with more precision now, uh, I was a student of the art in Brazil. I became a junior uh, instructor while in Brazil. I became a partner instructor while in Brazil and then in the United States working with my brothers. And then I became a chief instructor working on my own. And then as I became a chief instructor and formed other black belts, I, be I became somewhat of a mentor. People come to me almost like an older brother or a father figure. And I, I, I never took for granted sometimes the influence that I never realized I had in many of the people that I came across. But when you're on the mentoring stage, then you really realize uh, more about your purpose. Man, I, I'm here to change the lives of people, not just to teach them martial arts. And the association became uh, the next frontier. You know, and uh, I've had the blessing of having tremendous people working with me and helping me out. My wife, Lindsay. You know, she shed the blood and sweat. Uh, recently, I got for the past two years another partner, Adam Coral, who's a great marketing uh, genius and uh, very instrumental in helping me out in the areas that I lack. And I was able to form a team. You know, you're nothing without your team, Caleb. And, and, and when you start in the martial arts, a lot of times you get used to this one man show type of mentality. I, I clean the mats, I answer the emails, I make all the calls. 
And because of the need at the time, you don't have maybe the money to pay for people to work for you. But if you don't expand your horizons and allow good people to get into your life, you're going to be limited to how far you can go. And for me, uh, the sky's the limit. I want to reach as many people as I can uh, because I feel jujitsu is, is a powerful tool to improve people. You know. Well, and when you look at you being a part of that, you know, wave of pioneers that was kind of spreading this you know, you were in a position to kind of look to those that mentored you and then look at the people that you were bringing up. And then now you get to look at the people they have brought up. Like you said, it's realizing that you are in a moment of the of the present. But when you look to the future and where you came from, I mean, it's an amazing revolution that has happened. And so when you look back, I know because everybody always gets asked a question. Did you ever think it was going to be this big? Did you ever know it was going to turn into this? And most people say no at the time. They were just, they were just doing. But there are a lot of times you hear insight of they knew what they were doing was special. Was there a time in which you knew like jujitsu is unique compared to what is happening everywhere else in the world with the different styles that were happening? I'm going to give you here a perspective on jujitsu's uniqueness, okay? Uh, when it comes to MMA, it's a, a strong component of the game. You know, you agree with me that most champions nowadays spend some time doing grappling, wrestling, uh, jiu-jitsu, besides striking. Uh, secondly, jiu-jitsu opened the way for other martial arts that may, uh, I mean, most of my students, they were accomplished instructors of different styles, even nowadays, that especially with the, the association members, that's the majority majority of the case. I have accomplished karate instructors, uh, uh, taekwondo, judo instructors, you name it, uh, MMA gym owners. And and uh, what's the jiu-jitsu component that makes you unique? I think because jiu-jitsu, you don't have to hit the guy all the time. Uh, I think the level of injuries, especially if you have instruction with safety in mind, you know, you train hard, but you train smart. Uh, there is a longevity factor. I think you can last, your body can last longer than some of the other injuries that you see happening with different styles that go a lot more intense. We can pace things in a different way. You can try to wear the guy out before you go for the kill. While other styles, you have to be aggressive and explosive uh, uh, way more. So there's a technicality to the art. And also there's the appeal. Because you just, I think, is so intricate, so extensive the knowledge that you can never tap into everything. You can never know enough of it. And I think this could be discouraging for some, but I think it's exciting for the majority because it's kind of like you never run out of possibilities of improving whatever it is that you've got, okay? And uh, a lot of the appeal that I see, especially guys from other martial arts that jump into jiu-jitsu, it's ironic because I've seen wrestlers doing jiu-jitsu you know how wrestlers are conditioned never to be on their back. And all of a sudden, these guys are doing guard, and they don't they didn't care about being on top anymore. They freaking – I mean, when you saw Jeff Monson doing ADCC, if you look at his career, his first tournaments, always top game, always wrestling, holding on and scoring points and being on top. All of a sudden, the guy starts to train with Laborio, American top team, and all of a sudden, the guy pulls guard. He develops a freaking half guard. And you see Jeff Monson even put, beating people in MMA doing jiu-jitsu instead of wrestling. And I was like, whoa, what's happening here? So I remember I have a good friend of mine, uh, accomplished boxer out of Australia, Steve 
Uh, he lives in Canberra, the capital of Australia. Big guy. He used to be a basketball player, amazing boxer, you know. Uh, and this guy started doing jiu-jitsu. And he does jiu-jitsu every day, twice a day. It became a drug for him. And this is the guy that in the, in the beginning, he would look at you just like, yeah, this is not for me. This is a wussy game. I don't want to grapple people. And he told me, oh, I grappled this light guy one time. And the guy just twisted me all over and said, you got to do this thing, man. That's amazing. And then he got into the, the thing, you know, and he plays a half guard game. He's a giant and he pulls guard. I was like, what the heck? You know? So you see from all variety, I guess, of perspectives. But for me, the, more, the bottom line is also the social component. I think in terms of uh, relationships, I'm not sure how it works with you, Caleb, but I haven't seen a martial arts yet that gather that kind of uh, customers that we can get through jiu-jitsu. I mean, you look at my brother, he got all the celebs that just walk to him. Uh, all the business people here that we teach, we teach guys that goes from an average Joe to a, a billionaire. And they all do jujitsu. They have that Chuck Norris, for instance. One of the reasons that led him to jujitsu, being an actor, he couldn't afford getting bruised uh, if he got hit while he was doing sparring. So he said, you know what? I'm going to do jujitsu because I can just go hard, train hard. You have a good, good time, good workout. He enjoyed doing it. He loved the grapple. Uh, and he didn't get any uh, sign on his face that would affect his day-to-day -day job. You know, so you have a lot of professionals, you know, surgeons, dentists and stuff that they can't afford to do a martial arts and go back to work the next day because there's the technicality, technicality and longevity aspect and lifestyle, I think, there are components of it. So for me, it's, it's, like a combination. it's still a puzzle. The kind of people that we come across, it's just like, man, is that true? This guy just walked into my gym, you know? And, and it's amazing because you'll be an instructor and being somebody that has a name in, in the business, uh, they treat you with natural respect of the authority that you have on the mat because of the knowledge that you have, that you pass to them and so on. But I, I do feel that uh, we become life, lifestyle coaches, uh, yeah. you know, amongst other things, you know, and people value that, you know. I agree. So, I mean, it's like, like you said, it transcends the mats quite often where it impacts people, not only just physically, but almost emotionally and, and spiritually to a degree to where you, you start affecting their perspective of the world around them instead of just their perspective on martial arts, which brings me to an interesting point is a lot of times in the jujitsu circles, you hear the, you know, jujitsu better than this, jujitsu better than that. But a lot of times people forget jujitsu was made up of martial artists from other styles for like the first probably 20 years, you know, because it was martial artists seeking to improve, you know? So like a big number of Brazilian jujitsu people were, karate black belts, taekwondo black belts, rest, you know, like you kind of mentioned to where jujitsu almost represents the bridge of all these different styles instead of being, you know, the ultimate, like, well, we're just better than everybody, which, I mean, honestly, I feel it's kind of a silly conversation for a, a real martial artist, but, but you see that loss. And I think it's almost like the maturity of the martial artist is reflected with that because jujitsu is what brought all these people together. You know, I mean, look at MMA. I mean, it was the catalyst that sparked everything. Yeah, I, th I think um, you can look at this from several perspectives. I, th I like the educated one. Uh, anything you can do to improve yourself and grow is worth the try. And martial arts is a pie with many pieces. You know, you, so jujitsu is a, is a good piece of the pie. 
But I think, for instance, when you have the inception of MMA and combat sports, you cannot be limited on one dimension because nowadays you have so many people involved in breaking down your game and preparing and see how fighters do their training camps. They already know who they're fighting, what kind of style. They study the footage, the highlight reels of the guy and all that stuff. So you're not dealing just with a random person that you're going to get into a fight who may not know anything about what you're doing. You're dealing with professionals that they make a living about breaking down what you do in order to defeat you. So uh, when you're thinking that broad perspective, uh, you, you got to be inviting and including every possible aspect of the game. I think if you are a jiu-jitsu practitioner and you don't do wrestling and some sort of strikes, uh, you're limiting yourself. You know what I'm saying? You can still take to the jiu-jitsu perspective. Everything that I do with jiu-jitsu is my perspective. But that doesn't mean that I eliminate the angles that other martial arts styles provide me. You know, so, uh, so for me, it's needless that, especially nowadays, that point of view, oh, who is better than who? I don't care who's better than who. I just care that because nowadays people talk about not just styles prevail, individuals prevail. Guys that mix better whatever styles they got, look at Saint-Pierre. George Saint-Pierre, when he was a purple belt, he would go to Hansel's Academy, my cousin. And there will be guys right there that will maybe tap him in jiu-jitsu or wrestlers who are better than him, that will take him down. But when they did MMA sparring, George Saint-Pierre would usually will get the better of the guys because he was good at mixing the, all the elements. So, so, and he was a great example of that, you know. Yeah. So whether he's the best in a single style is not the critical part or whether whatever style he's good is the best. No, how he mixes the styles to get to the point and defeat whichever is the, the opponent that he's going to go against and try to maximize his strength with the guy's weaknesses. You know, so, and I think his strength was the mixing. He was good yeah. at mixing things. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree, so. you know, and, and it kind of goes back to, and I, I use that point to illustrate what you're talking about with the philosophy of martial arts, because when you go to using one metric to measure the efficacy of something or how good something and which one is better, it usually isn't one metric. There usually is not one that is the best. And when you look at jujitsu and the philosophy, and especially like your personal influence and style, you've always been about improvement. Well, improvement has to be based on some sort of starting point, which goes back to the individual. Like what you talked about a minute ago was the individual can grow and expand and get better. And it might be that individual is better within multiple styles, multiple arts. You know, this armbar may not work for this person, but it works for another. And I think that's the underlying wisdom that people need to be looking at within the martial arts style that bleeds over into regular life is it's about you growing as an individual. And the more that you grow and expand, the better you're going to be in multiple areas. Sure. Well, the thing too, though, about jiu-jitsu is practicality, right? So if you have a smaller guy going against a bigger guy and all you try to do is decide who's going to outstrike the other, just the fact there's a difference of size gives incentive for the smaller guy to try to get the guy on the ground. Because when the guy's flat, he can have better control and then trapping the guy or grounding and pounding the guy or submitting the guy may become a safer method for him to deal with the situation than just keeping the fight all the way on their feet. So you got different perspectives that you can play out. But generally speaking, I think you should be well versed. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, and that's what you see jujitsu kind of evolving back around to is 
you know, this overall well-rounded style I've been noticing at the last few years. And I love it because it just, I think it opens up that conversation with people that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they weren't having a whole lot of where, you know, it was like, we're in the gi, we're going to be on our back and here's the choke, here's the submission where now people are looking at it as a, as a standalone, well-rounded style with all these different pieces and parts. And, and that goes back to that philosophy piece you were talking about, you know, like the philosophy of jujitsu is bigger than the techniques. Yeah. The, 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 the other part too, I think uh, when you talk about philosophy, uh, you know, if it's something too far-fetched, like something too abstract, oh, too general, like the guy's just traveling. Oh, man, you should be like a, an oriental master. You know, like when you watch Kung Fu back in the old days with David Carradine. I'm not sure if you've got to see any of those. You know, you have the mystique and everything. No, philosophy has to be practical, all right? Leave your ego at the door. You know, you start with your attitude first. Attitude and respect. And then from that point on, discipline that has to do with consistency so all those little things they you know it's easier said than done with kids because kids are more moldable you can prep them a lot quicker but adults get into the groove uh, quite fast because a few adults get hooked with the the endorphin aspect of jiu-jitsu when you do a, when you go roll uh, you know it's like a magic moment you know your mind is at peace you don't care what happens to the world but at peace man if that day is your last day, you die happy, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? So it, it kind of, like, it's addictive because, man, it's an experience. It's like a, a healthy drug uh, compared to jiu-jitsu to, to a certain extent of that. So, and, and that becomes somewhat of a, a reflection that you try to carry on to your life. You become a more relaxed person. A more relaxed person that still has awareness about what's going on without being in a hurry to deal with everything you know, without losing his cool. Uh, so I feel it makes you more patient. Definitely makes you more patient, make you more controlled, make you more uh, capable of dealing with situations that in the past you would break. For instance, you go against the toughest guy and you go a full round with the guy without getting tapped. You're being smashed every minute of the round. You go for three rounds in a row. Man, you don't want to do anything anymore. You want to just sit down and do nothing. We walk out of there like feeling like you're the champion of the world because just the fact you're able to endure a degree of challenge and difficulty and intensity, anything that happens to your life, you, if you translate or transfer that feeling into something else, a lot of businesses that you do are no joke because business, when you do business things, uh, a wrong decision can mean a loss of income. A loss of income means not just you, your, your dependents, your kids, uh, your employees, people pay for it, right? So, and how you deal with all the pressures of life. I think jujitsu is a pillar. It doesn't give you all the answers, but it gives you a good reference point to start from. So anytime something is not going the way you want it, you go do your training. That's why I encourage students, don't stop when things are going wrong with your life. When things are going wrong in your life, that's when you have to most, most of all, I tell you my students, if you cannot pay right now because you're getting to a divorce, you lost your, all your income, or you have a job loss or a disaster happened, man, I'll credit you this month or the next month, and we can do a payment plan later. I never tell the guy I'm going to give it for free because I don't like to incentivize people to be lazy or complacent. But at the same time, I want to make sure the guy does not stop when he needs it 
the most. Because a lot of times people get desperate. And I have a Marine friend of mine that told me, when things go wrong, you have to stay on your routine. If you change your routine, you stop eating, you stop sleeping, you get depressed, then everything goes downhill. You get out of shape, your mind goes from bad to worse, and everything else in your life just go down the hill. So I think jujitsu, and I've seen that happening with so many guys, veterans, for instance, that come back with PTSD, jujitsu is like a therapy for them. Initially, it's like a crutch. They use that as like a drug, a pain relief, but it eventually becomes a pillar because they develop relationships with other people on the mat. And there's such a great camaraderie on the mat that I think, uh, I mean, Jocko Willink always talks about that on his podcast. Jiu-Jitsu gives him a sense of, uh, you know, some of the things that he felt when he used to be in the military. You know, you have that level of camaraderie. And and I see that happening with all veterans. Yeah. Yeah. uh, No, I mean, it's just, that's a really good description. And, you know, honestly, you embody that so well, which, you know, some people don't know our history, but like almost 20 years ago, I was a kid in Dallas and I showed up to your school because I was there for business. And um, I mean, that was a life-changing experience for me because I, I was training and fighting and, and doing some grappling with different people. And and I remember when I showed up, I, I knew I was like, oh, this guy's supposed to be really good. I didn't realize to what level, but you were just so welcoming. And I was just a kid that didn't know any better. And I remember, you know, I was waiting on a taxi and you're like, no, man, I'll, I'll drop you off. No big deal. And just, I just remember that because I had no reason or need, you know, for, for any assistance or anything. Cause I was just a nobody that showed up and yet you were so helpful and, and just, and over all the years, just seeing everything that you're doing for your students and building your association and what you stand for and represent, it's very obvious to see that you're trying to help people be successful in life through martial arts. And, and you know that has resonated always. And and every time I get to train with you or we're on the mats or get to see you, it just it reminds me of that moment that for you it was probably an act of doing the right thing. You know, probably don't even remember much about it. But for me, like that was a defining moment that helped develop who I was going to be and how I was going to treat people. And you're doing that on a world scale, you know, because your platform has grown so much. So it definitely is built into the product and noticeable. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I guess the way I was brought up, I always believe treating people with respect, uh, treating people the way you want to be treated, you know, uh, leave your ego at the door. So all those things unfolded, you know, uh, I mean, like I said, if you, if I see you today, I don't think I could, I could be more experienced now in many things. I still have a lot to learn, but I think the person I was then is Based in the core is the same I, I am right now. You know, uh, I think when I saw you, a young kid, you know, waiting outside, and I'm, I'm always just like, man, where's this guy going? So uh, I know nowadays you have Uber, you know, things are so much easier. You can program, pick up times, and all that stuff. But, you know, and I guess I was glad I was there. And if that served any reason for you to feel, you know, it was a good thing for you to pass on, uh, that's the pay forward aspect of jiu-jitsu. I feel what I try to create at my academy is an environment that's inviting, all right? And uh, I feel that uh, starts from the top. You know, the students are, they will represent the instructor in more ways than one, including the attitude. 
if instructors have a poor attitude, they have a big ego, it's unfortunate because they're going to mold some of the students to follow them uh, in that particular aspect of their personality, which it's doomed to fail, in my opinion. You know? So you made a really good point about, you know, people are going to be reflection of more than just a coach's technique. You know, they're going to be reflective of their perspective on life, how they help people and empower people. Um, that, that's a, a really insightful perspective you have on that. So if you were going to look back at your influences at some of the mentors and coaches, who do you feel like influenced you the most? And, and what were some of those lessons that you took from them? So uh, my dad, of course, uh, was a family man, very responsible, uh, amazing guy. Taught me about family, uh, you know, being a good parent. Always there for me. He always was on my corner. He taught me about uh, for the good or for the bad, any match that I won, any match that I lost, he was supportive equally the same way because he was already proud of the fact that I was already there competing. And you see nowadays kids, when they compete and you have parents' behavior, the parents, they project, in my opinion, a negative uh, way of dealing uh, with their kids' uh, performances. For instance, if the kid doesn't win, the parent acts like the parent lost the match. And when the kid needs support, the parent gets pissed off because the kid lost. I mean, it's for me, that's parental abuse. You have these parents that they project themselves on their kids. And the thing that my dad was so amazing is, I mean, I won most of my matches compared to the ones I lost. Uh, but even the few matches that I lost, he was there as happy and as supportive as he was whenever I won. You know, and for me, the level of confidence and comfort that I uh, had by having that kind of a person on, on, on my corner, it was uh, really instrumental in the way I look at things. Because uh, as you know, you're always learning regardless of what the result is, you know. Well, and when you're not afraid of failure, I mean, that's yeah, a major yeah. piece too because you don't fear failure anymore. Yeah. yeah. The other thing too is uh, uncle, my late uncle Carlos Gracie was another person that I consider a guru. Uh, he was a very wise man. He was the one that innovated the Gracie diet, one of the main patriarchs of the Gracie family, the oldest of uh, the Gracie you know, uh, founders. And he taught me a lot of life about lifestyle, health, about the philosophical part of jiu-jitsu, about all the principles. I had a lot of lessons from him that were instrumental to mold the person that I became. And so those two right there are on the top, you know, when it comes to, uh, I think, uh, Holes, Gracie, I was too young to absorb. I didn't get a chance to spend enough time with him. But uh, by being one of the greatest uh, champions, the, the champion at the time, the best Gracie at the time when I was uh, a blue belt before his passing. Uh, he was so humble and loving. People just loved him. He was a very, it was a tender heart, a lion with a tender heart, if you can kind of translate that. So, and I think too, in terms of a good person, I think my brother Hegan, you know, Hegan was a uh, goodness all around. Hegan, my brother Hegan, is somebody that has helped so many people and he has so much goodness in him. Uh, he's always ready to help, you, you know, sometimes to his detriment, you know, so, but he's somebody that have the utmost respect as well. Yeah. I mean, so, and that's something that, you know, talking to, you know, many of the people in the industry and, and in your family, a lot of them resonate that same idea of, 
It was teach you how to be a fighter to where you can defend yourself, your family, no matter what. And that discipline of overcome the obstacle regardless of what it is. But at the same time, there was like this soft support side to everyone that, yeah. you know, was there for you whenever they, you needed to pick up or you needed a little push or motivation. Um, and, and I feel like that you've carried that on through with your organization and, and just the way you approach jujitsu, even logically, you know, like we were training years ago and you and Laborio were, were doing a little clinic and somebody had asked about like this intricate lapel worm guard thing. And you both were like, well, let's just go through it. And you, you went through it step by step and you identified each fundamental principle because you were like, I don't know the technique. Why don't you show me? And then you would use these principles to help, you know, well, we don't want to get here. We don't want to get here. And like, you just, you just rewound it, like reverse engineered. And, and that was just so impactful on me. Cause I mean, I picked up so many details from that little instance and it wasn't just for that specific situation. And I always use the example of like a, a good coach can tell you a good move. A great coach can show you how that move correlates to another one, but a master level coach is going to give you information that is profound that can influence like other styles or off the mat. And, and the way that you reverse engineer just that little simple thing that one time, it helped me understand like this bigger philosophy of fundamental details, which, which now like, I mean, I see some of the, the things you teach now and your methodology, it's always these little details of just take away their base or their leverage, like simple task instead of a bunch of techniques, you know? Going back to that is like the big things start small. It's on the smaller things that you make the biggest difference. See what I'm saying? So for me, jujitsu is, I try to see the small stuff. So if you throw, if you throw at me a big problem, I cannot solve it, but it's like a big tree. You're going to chip you hit with the axe once, one chip one side, chip the other, and eventually you thin out the tree and the thing eventually falls. So that's the way I look at things. They are beyond my level of comfort. Not necessarily comfort, like nobody knows everything, but you, you, if you're a principle-based person, you try to see where something starts. So if you don't have an idea how that starts, you have no other option but to reverse engineering. You know, you backtrack. Okay, you're showing me what it is. Let's go back and see how it starts. Because once you trace back, now we can do the have a full view of the whole thing, how it starts, how it transitions, and how it ends. And jiu-jitsu is basically to the core, that's what it is. You set it up, you transition, you complete. You know, and depending where I am, a lot of times you can do a setup, but you can't finish a position. Or you can finish, but you can never start. You know, so you got to figure out at what part you're going to start and then dissect from there, you know, and, and, and you can't have a full answer until you go to the smaller stuff and clear that out of the way. And I think mm -hmm. for me, that's, that's amazing because I love doing this. For me, it's kind of like a playtime. If somebody brings anything to me that's outside my comfort level, outside the box, so to speak, I'll try to use uh, my breakdown thought process to make sense of that. Like puzzles that you put the pieces together. Okay, let's group in colors, let's group in shapes, and let's see what kind of picture, you know, we can see from here, you know, so. Yeah. Oh, and when you that, look at that kind of, uh, when, when you look at that philosophy just on the jiu-jitsu side, when you're trying to inspire students to have better critical thinking skills or problem-solving skills, 
How do you translate some of those concepts to life off of the mat? So uh, it's funny because uh, I was talking about that uh, a couple of days ago, uh, where you stand on any subject. So you have a, a like your stance. What do we use the stance? Okay, in jiu-jitsu, good stance means you're going to be in a position that you are well balanced and less susceptible to be attacked uh, or submitted uh, when you're passing the guard, for instance. So you have levels, low, uh, mid, and high stance. And then you have angles, diagonal, you know, tangents, you go around. So you use a bit of physics and geometry to figure out what is the sweet spot, okay? So sweet spot is where it feels the easiest, the most comfortable, the safest, the more effortless, all right? So in jiu-jitsu, you got to find the sweet spot, you know? And, and it's different for different individuals. A taller guy might have a bit different spot than a guy who's shorter, a guy with long legs. Like I was teaching a guy how to do a triangle guy with short legs or a guy to do a dart stroke uh, with short arms. How can you make that happen? So you got to think like a multidimensional, so to speak. You imagine a hologram and you spin the guy around, you know, and then you try to find the sweet spot in, in, in a different, in a more, uh, I would say, comprehensive way. Because a lot of times the way people look at jiu-jitsu is like a, through a glass window. Like if you're watching YouTube clip, it's like seen through a glass window. You know, you see what's happening. You see the description. Some instructors have different styles. They beat through the bush and they kill you with their talk. They talk eight minutes and they show one minute of action. So I'd say fast forward and watch the stuff from the end, the last 60 seconds of the clip. Just see how the move works. And then if you need more, keep backtracking, but don't see the whole thing. Nobody has time for that, okay? If you have guys who are conceptual, then if you are interested enough on that, hear the concept. Because concept, like I said, serves a lot of purposes. It's not just about your understanding the technique, it's about body positioning, it's about many other aspects that help you uh, uh, make yourself more successful. So uh, I, I feel, for instance, one thing I apply in life is I break things down in three, okay? If I see a body, I break down legs, trunk and head. If I see an arm, I break down wrist, elbow, and shoulder. If I go for an arm bar, I'll never try to tap you on your elbow. I'll always try to tap you on your wrist first. Because either I'll tap you right away or I break your grip and then I can tap you on the arm. Okay? So just give a random example. If you use that as a principle, right there you're ahead of the game compared to somebody who just goes for the arm blindly. So when you have a situation you have to deal with in life. Uh, you have best case scenario, worst case scenario, and the middle ground, the compromise. is not as good, not as bad. So you're not gonna win every time. You're not gonna lose every time. Some, some battles you're not gonna win no matter where you start. So what is the compromise? When I say compromise, I'm not talking about integrity. There are certain things that are non-negotiable. But when it comes to finding a common ground, because when you talk to people, different people have different uh, interpretations of what you're talking. Some people, you say one thing, they hear something else. Okay? So what's the first thing that I have to do? You've got to share the same vision. 
can we all see the same thing? Do you see what I see? And if the guy says no, I, I cannot finish the discussion. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to waste my energy trying to convince the guy of something the guy can't see. If I tell an instructor, if you give things for free, you're going to spoil that student and ruin that person because they're going to carry on that mentality and it's not going to serve them well. And I've done that so many times. You want to give a, a break to people or discount. And I had, I remember when I married and my wife started to do an audit of uh, my books. And I had 200 students at a time. Out of those 200, 100 didn't pay. So I was supposed to make double. And what was, and at one point in time, many of those guys didn't have money or asked for a discount and this and that. And you know, you know, you're young and dumb. You say, oh, no, sure, man. You pay me later. Pay me when you can and stuff. And then I'm thinking here from a, a business perspective, why am I doing this? First of all, uh, a guy who pays and then I give this guy the right not to pay, I'm being dishonest with the other student who's a good member. Second, why is that guy not paying? That guy has a girlfriend and he goes drink every night and he goes to Vegas once a month and splurge money. So I said, you know what, bud? You, you can skip a couple of uh, Vegas trips and save up some money to pay for your jujitsu lessons. So I never taught that guy responsibility and accountability. I was kind of cool with the guy being lazy or complacent. So uh, that's kind of like the compromise, you know, part of it. I mean, I, I, I can, for instance, like I told you, if somebody doesn't have money, I'll never give for free anymore. I'll say, I can give you credit right now that you're gonna pay me later, even if it's installments, worst case scenario. But if you give the guy uh, something for nothing, you're not teaching him anything, okay? And I, you wouldn't do that to other people. You know, when you become more accountable, you don't feel comfortable. If people want to give you something for free, I don't accept it. I want to pay, you know? So uh, that's a principle that I use uh, in jiu-jitsu. I pick my battles. If, if I see that there is no sharing of the same vision, there's no reason for me to push. But I can be... Uh, waiting for the opportunity to talk to that person again once they come to different realization. You know what I'm saying? So pick your battles. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and when you look at that principle of, like you said, you know, using examples to help bring out character in people is, is something that sometimes gets looked over. And, and as the industry evolves and changes, it's just sometimes it's hard to know what you don't know. So when a student doesn't know what their end goal is, like they don't know what it feels like to be a, bl a blue belt or a purple belt. They don't know what it feels like to be a black belt. So they're chasing something that they can't tangibly measure. And so then they try to measure it from their limited perspective. And sometimes that can cause a disconnect. And that's where that trust and relationship between you and your students is probably so important because they have to trust you that you're taking them down the right path because they're basically blindfolded. You know, it's like they're blindfolded and they're depending on you to guide them and you just have to keep that trust. And like you said, when you become complacent or if you lax the rules or if you start compromising on certain things, you can affect that trust, not only with you and an individual, but sometimes as the tribe or the group or the team as a whole. Um, and I think a lot of martial artists and, and coaches have experienced that, but but now that you're worldwide and you have people all over the world, how do you kind of keep the quality uh, of the martial arts, but not, and not only that, but the quality of the people to a degree of like, man, this is the vision that I really wanted to have happen. 
Um, okay, so when you deal with numbers, it's interesting because you have a population uh, with statistics that you can measure. And what I found out that's kind of crazy is it's impossible. I mean, you have a, a, a filtering system uh, in order to allow people into your organization. There, besides the regular things like background checks and, you know, you go further. I call people in the community where that person belongs to. In social media, you see what kind of posts that person puts out there. So you can kind of have a, a, a vague idea what you're dealing with. Uh, we look at things as a family. Okay, uh, during the closure because of the corona situation, uh, we never stopped working diligently and consistently with several of the people that we work with because they needed our support more than ever at that time. Okay? It's not just from a knowledge base, but from a mental mindset base. So we had mindset coaches that we hired and we we're really up, upping the number of uh, calls, video conferences like Zoom and reaching out to people and talking to people. And any, it was like a 24 seven. Any of my guys could call me any day of the week and my partner if need be, and we will be there because it was somewhat of a crisis management situation. So uh, we're glad to say that not most of the people with us were able to, uh, some are still dealing with the situation, the ones on the West and East Coast that uh, states haven't reopened as they've done in Texas so far. So they're still delayed a bit in the way things are, but uh, it really reinforced the sense of family what that's, uh, some of those guys felt was like, man, there's a family-based atmosphere here. These guys are really there for me. And, and that's what I care about people. You know, like uh, uh, people talk to me on the phone, oh, Master Coral Gulf calls Machado. You know, they, they're afraid to talk to me on the phone because, uh, you know, I'm Carlos Machado. I, I look, like you said, I'm the same guy that gave you a ride when you're waiting for the cab. Uh, that didn't change. So I, I'm, I'm leveled and I'm on the trenches with people. That's what I feel people become motivated to be with you is not just the value of what you offer in terms of your services, but just the level, like you said, the trust comes from the way you are with people. I am here with those guys on the trenches. I'm not, let's say in this uh, building here on the AC, never in touch. You gotta be in touch with everybody. Somebody has a problem, you gotta talk to them. And, uh, but, doesn't change the fact that when you have a lot of people, you're going to see a few people here and there falling off uh, here and there. You're going to have to trim, you know, the tree and, and, and the bad branches. But one invariable thing is uh, a lot of those guys, they're not as many. Uh, and, uh, and when I look at the pattern, uh, there is a degree of uh, ego involved. Uh, a lot of times they never engage to learn about the things that we have to offer. So they're not as consistent, let's say, with the calls. You know, when you try to consult with people and help people out, Caleb, what's one of the most frustrating things that happens in the industry is people hear what you say, but they never do implement what you say. They talk, they don't walk, you know? And I cannot make you work if you don't want to make it work. If you don't make use of it, no matter what you pay for, what you get, it's not going to have value because you're missing on your end, okay? So usually that's one of the situations that I see happening. The other, and the other is based on the ego. 
if if you tell somebody something, but they're used to do things their own way, they they stay on the way. They never get out of the way to really actually get the job done the way it's supposed to. I have examples of guys that for two years, uh, we have talked to the guy, said, you got to do things like this, you got to do things like that. And the guy for two years, he would listen but not do it. They say, you know what, I'm going to give it a try. And lo and behold, the guy's doing amazing. You know what I'm saying? And then the guy uh, talks now, why didn't I hear you earlier? And I'm not saying that I have all the answers, that my partner has all the answers. We're always trying to up our learning curve, whether it's in martial arts or in business. But with that said, I cannot change people. Life changes people. And if people are open to, to learn, open to hear, open to share the vision, I think there's hope that they're going to be able to do it. Uh, but the other thing, too, uh, just going back from my point of view, too, is I look at different people that have different energy, all right? Guys who are drama queens, they have so much drama. They're so dramatic. And I try to stay away from those as, I mean, a vampire from the light. You see what I'm saying? I, I cannot spend, if somebody takes a lot of my time and things never get solved, and the problem keeps reoccurring, I'm done. So you know what, Doug? I cannot help you find somebody else. I'm not the person. I mean, I I tell some of my people occasionally, I said, I cannot help you. Here, I reimburse your money. You can go your own way. I, I can't I can't do it for you. You know, because I'd rather not have that person. Because yeah. it's taking the emotional bank. My emotional bank is getting affected and taking away my positivity to deal with the other ones that add instead of the ones that t- that subtract. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's almost so, like you, know, you gotta make good decisions. You know, keep yeah. keep your herd. You know, sharing the same vision and get rid of the drama queens. If you do those, oh my gosh! If I do, if I did this way back, I think my life would have been a million times better. But I I allowed a lot of drama in my life because I, I felt like I needed to help those people. And I realized I was not helping them and they actually I was allowing them to affect me in a negative fashion anyways. So and you see people that grow from that where they believe at a younger age or maybe from an inexperienced perspective that the more that I keep investing, the more that I'm helping people instead of measuring the result. That's like sometimes your continued investment is almost hindering them. It's, it's almost like a negative codependent situation of, I keep letting you get away with it. I keep letting you get away with it. I keep, uh, you know, letting the excuses work. So, you know, just because I'm putting more energy into somebody doesn't mean that that's going to help them more where it sounds like you're measuring the end result a little bit sooner, where if we're not getting results, we may need to change the entire plan, which means I may have to step out of this plan. And I think that there's a nice sliver yeah. of wisdom right there that I know in my own life, I've learned that too, where if, if you keep putting the investment and, and it's not working, you could be part of the problem. Sometimes you're not part of the problem, but sometimes you're just not the answer to the problem. I think that that yeah. really has a profound influence. Sure. Um, my last question would be this. If you could only leave your kids with a couple or three pieces of advice to be successful and fulfilled in life, what would those pieces of advice be? Okay. Uh, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Okay. 
and don't don't base your decisions on approval of others. And if you're going to make it, you're going to have to break it. Meaning, you're going to have moments that you're not going to you're not going to just mess up. You're going to mess up big, big. And those moments are the ones that are going to set you apart. Those moments when you when you're on the making and breaking, and you break it. Those moments will set you apart more in terms of winning and losing than anything else. Because uh, in the greatest battles where there's also the room for the greatest greatest victories, and that gives me just to finalize the sense of work. If you get something easy, it's not worth. It's only worth if it, there's a lot of challenges in order to get it. And so I want my kids to understand that it won't be easy and the higher or more demanding the challenge, the more worth you will be at the end. You've made an impact on so many people across the world. I mean, including myself, I've always appreciated our friendship and you've always been a mentor and a coach to me. And what you're doing is, is making a major difference. And there's people everywhere that can definitely attest to that. I appreciate you spending time talking to me today. Is there anything you'd like to finish with? Uh, I just uh, want to, you know, anybody wants to reach out to Carlos Machado, you can go to uh, carlosmachadojujitsu.com. Uh, and if you like philosophy, I have my book that I did on Amazon, putting the pieces together. And that has a, a, a few of the quotes that I used to write and that I put in a compilation, you know, volume. And just kind of, you know, just uh, anybody who wants to look up or talk, go to my fan page on Facebook, Carlos Machado fan page, or Instagram at Carlos Machado Jiu-Jitsu. So that's it, pretty much. Awesome. Well, thank you for everything. I hope you have a great weekend, and we'll definitely talk soon. You got it, brother. Take care.